Continuing in our sermon series on the mysteries of the Holy Rosary, we reflect today on the mystery of the Assumption of our Blessed Mother, normally observed uh, on August the 15th. We'll reflect upon it uh, fittingly during, during this week, during the Easter season, as it is a sort of uh, a, a very much an Easter-themed feast in itself. And so the Assumption of a Blessed Mother is, as is dogmatically defined in 1954, it is the, the fact of um, the Assumption of our Blessed Mother is the, the fact that she was raised up body and soul into heaven at the end of her earthly life. And so the fruit of the mystery is the grace of a happy death. Admittedly, not the most popular sermon topic you will hear for First Communions. Admittedly, however, but it is a fitting one, especially in light of the gift of the Eucharist in this Holy Mass. The grace of a happy death is something which Catholics speak about, and I think only Catholics could come up with such a phrase, a happy death. Everyone else in the world probably thinks it's madness to speak of such a thing. But it is indeed a happy death that each of us seeks at the end of our earthly life. St. Joseph is the patron of a happy death and is part of the reason where we get this theology of, a, of it to begin with. He died with Our Lady and Our Lord, one at his right, one at his left. And if there's ever a, a happier death, I don't know what it could possibly be to have Our Lord and Our Lady right there at one side to pass from this earthly life. And so he is the patron of a happy death. And the assumption of our Blessed Mother could also be termed a happy death in that sense as she was surrounded not by our Lord and St. Joseph, of course, but by the apostles of the church, her sons, to whom she had been entrusted by the Lord as he breathed his last on the cross. The reality of the assumption of our Blessed Mother is, is found in a particular place, interestingly enough, the tomb of Our Lady there in Jerusalem. Now, in contemporary theology, many people will discuss and debate whether Our Lady died at the end of her life, and they'll come up with all kinds of theological reasons as why she did or did not, they would suppose. And this is fine and good. It's not been dogmatically defined, and so the discussion can be had. But the fathers of the church certainly anticipate and understand and held that Our Lady did die at the end of her life and then was assumed very shortly thereafter. And in fact, the, the tradition of the church holds the same, because why would you have a tomb if Our Lady never was in it? And this is the reason for these things, in sense. And the story goes, rather interestingly, that at the end of her earthly life, that she knew that it was the end, and all the apostles gathered around her except Thomas. Poor Thomas. He always seems to be the, the patron saint of late people, right? He was late. He wasn't there for the resurrection of the Lord. He, had, he came a week later. Our lady, is, our lady is dying, and the only one missing is Thomas. And so Thomas missing again. Our Lady passes away, and the apostles, they cover her in the, in the funeral shroud, place her in the tomb, and roll the stone to be able to cover her, uh, as is the normal custom. Then Thomas arrives, and it is, it, it's the request of Thomas, just as Thomas requested at the beginning to touch the wounds of Jesus, here, he requested to see Our Lady one last time, even though she had died, to behold her face one last time. And so all of the apostles went to the tomb, and they opened the stone, they moved the stone away, and there was no body, 
but rather simply the cloths laying in the place where the body of Our Lady had been. And they all knew and understood that she too had been resurrected, just as Christ. She had been assumed into heaven, body and soul, in a manner similar to our Lord's ascension. As he himself raised himself by his power, Our Lady was assumed by the power of her Son. And so we understand these great mysteries and to rejoice in in the fact that there is the place on earth still where one can go and venerate the tomb of Our Lady and the place of her assumption. It's a fascinating place, really. Of course, as we know, well established by now, there's a church on top of the thing. And so whenever one goes in the church, it seems from the outside a rather small church, a little small place that you would go inside, a very small room, and then you would come back out. But that would be false, because whenever you walk in the doors, you are immediately met with a stairwell, which goes down. The, the covering, uh, the, the chapel essentially is just a small portion of the entryway to the tombs. I say tombs because as you're going, there are tombs on either side of the thing, on either side of the stairwell, including, fascinatingly enough, and much to my surprise, the tombs of Saints Joachim and Anne, the grandparents of the Lord and the parents of our Blessed Mother. And then one continues down the stairs and then goes to the place where the tomb of Our Lady is. And it's, of course, kind of encased in icons and images of Our Lady's death as she's surrounded by the apostles and Our Lady's assumption as she is, you know, being brought up into the heavens uh, to the joy of those who are gathered around, even though, in truth, it, it happened when they were not present um, that, you know, of course, the theology of rejoicing in Our Lady, because as the ascension of Our Lord says, where the head is God, the body is called to follow, and Our Lady is then the first fruits after Our Lord, so it seems fitting that, that we would be depicted as well, the members of the body of Christ, the church, will be anticipating that one day we too will be lifted up into the heavens to meet the Lord face to face. And on that day, it will be the greatest of joys. And that's what we experience a little foretaste of here today, especially in this gift of the Holy Eucharist, as we reflect upon this, this first communion that our sisters are making, and to know that we are able to receive our Lord as well. To come on Good Shepherd Sunday to celebrate this, this feast is to know the goodness of the Lord, to know the providence of the Lord, that as he tells us at the conclusion of the gospel, he came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. This is simply a reminder to us, especially during this Easter season, that death does not have the last word, but rather the last word is life. If it were not for the incarnation of our Lord and his resurrection, we would not have the Eucharist, which is his life given to us, which is the promise that he told us in St. John's Gospel in chapter 6, that if we eat and drink of his flesh and of his blood, we have life. But if we do not, we will not. It's the resurrection of Christ that makes all of these things possible, so that death in the end is defeated by life itself, that death does not come to a conclusion for us. But as the funeral rites of the church speak to us in the first preface for the dead, that life is changed, not ended. Life is changed, not ended. Death is not something to be feared by the faithful, but rather to be joyfully anticipated and celebrated in a strange way. Again, certainly contrary to our world's understanding of things. But if we truly understand what awaits us, we would fly to it with great joy and a smile upon our face 
because we know that it is the fullness of joy that has been promised to us. Our Lord, as he was preparing for the gift of the Eucharist for us, and many centuries in advance, gave the people manna from the desert, in the desert. As they were wandering, waiting to get to the promised land, they needed food. For 40 years, they were wandering in the wilderness, waiting for the day that they would be able to enter into the land promised to them, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land where, where God was providing for them in abundance and sweetness, but he was abiding for them in the desert as well. Manna he gave to them, a miraculous bread, so they might be able to be strong as they continued to seek after him. And as soon as they finally got to the promised land, the manna ceased to fall and never came again. They had the reward. They had the promised land. They had the thing for which they longed, and it was given to them. And the Lord, the good shepherd, was leading them all along the way. He was veiled as a pillar of fire or a pillar of cloud, depending on the time of day. But God always was leading them. He is the good shepherd. And he comes to be a shepherd for us as well, to lead us to the promised land, to lead us to heaven. We were made for heaven. We long for it, even if we don't realize it. Whenever we long to be freed from, from pain or sufferings, and whenever we lament things that bring sorrow to us, or when we lament injustice, it is simply our soul acknowledging that we were not made for this. We were made for something more. We were made for heaven. And whenever our soul longs for it, Christ comes to nourish us, to strengthen us along the way. He gives us the Eucharist. Fascinatingly enough, it's the Eucharist that is also our last sacrament to the church. You often think whenever people are dying that they come in the last rites we think about as anointing them, giving the anointing of the sick with the holy oils. But in fact, the theology of the church is very clear that the last sacrament we are to receive is the Eucharist. They call it viaticum, which is an anglicization of the two words via tecum in Latin, which means with you on the way. It is the way bread. It's the bread that is given to us daily, but also on the last day of our journey to make sure that we have the strength to continue to follow after Jesus and enter into the promised land. It is the way bread that is our strength and our joy. But Jesus doesn't just save it for the last day. He doesn't save it for the last hour. He gives it to us now, and he gives it to us all throughout our life to continue to walk along the way, to continue to strengthen us with joy, to strengthen us in hope, to be able to give us life. He himself tells us, if we would have life, we must eat and drink of his body and of his blood. And this was possible only by Holy Communion. And so as for us, as we contemplate the mystery of the assumption that Our Lady was brought into heaven, to know that one day God wants to do the same with us. He gives us the Eucharist, to make sure that in the end, whenever we ourselves will die too, that there is so much of God's life in us that death has no place to be. We are so full of the life of Jesus that death is gone. We will taste a bodily one, but our bodily death will simply mean an end to sufferings in this life and an entry into a joy that has no end, an entry into a joy that is 
greater than anything we can ever understand in this life, the greatest of things we enjoy in this world, all of them combined, every good thing that has ever happened to us will seem as nothing compared to the joy just at the first moment of beholding the face of God. And that joy will only continue to increase for all eternity. It's this that Jesus gives us a taste of today, the joy of receiving Jesus, the joy of receiving his flesh and his blood, the joy of receiving his life in our souls, and for our sisters to receive it for the first time, but certainly not the last, as many, many times Jesus will come to feed you, he who is the good shepherd and cares for your soul very, very much as he cares for each one of us. And so we ask the grace of the Lord to be with us today to help us to receive communion frequently, devoutly, with great piety, with great love within our hearts, to receive him worthily and well with a clean soul, and look forward to the day where we'll be able to receive him for that last time as the gift and the promise of Jesus, the grace of a happy death, one provided for, one in which we know that Jesus is with us.